Second Peter, chapter 1. We have been taking a deep dive into Peter's word to Christians here who are being pestered by false teachers. And his message in the first section is basically the sufficiency of Christ throughout our Christian life, not just at salvation, but also as we proceed within our Christian life. We possess divine power that gives us the ability to do anything that God calls us to do. That's pretty cool. We have great promises that are secured uh, through our relationship with Christ. Peter talks about that. Uh, we have power over whatever the world throws at us. Have you ever faced temptations that you're just not sure that you have what it takes? Peter says, you have what it takes. We have what is necessary to produce this excellent Christian character that he talks about in these verses here. Um, and as we look to Christ, he says, and as we depend upon him, we will not fall. So we have what it takes to not succumb to the haranguing of false teachers. And one of the main messages they would get, uh, this was kind of a, a pre-Gnostic version by Gnostic. It means knowledge. They were saying you had to have this secret knowledge, secret experiences with God in order to be, really be in with God. And what Peter is saying, you've got everything that God wants to give you at, at, at salvation in terms of your, your spiritual strength. You have the spirit with, within you. You don't need some other experience, some other steps, some other program. Um, so they had what it takes, and they don't need to be dependent upon these false teachers. Now, one thing that's clear about this section is that Peter is addressing people that he knows are Christians. These are letters to another church in modern-day Turkey, by the way. All right? Um, and he is not questioning the authenticity of their conversion. That is not what is at stake here. He's establishing confidence in their conver in conversion uh, that they've already experienced. Verse 1 says that they've obtained faith. Uh, so they have a host of, of benefits because of that possession. Um, uh, verse 2, it says they have grace and peace. Verse 3, they have divine power. Verse 4, precious and great promises. And then in verses 7 and 10, he calls them brothers. And in verse 9, he says, I don't want you to forget that you've been cleansed from your sins. And so clearly, he's established that these are believers that he's addressing. Okay? So let's take a look at uh, the context of this passage. We'll look at the whole section and read that, but we're only looking at verses 9 through 11 today and finishing up the, the section today. So let's all stand as we take a look at it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, 
be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go before the Lord, and would you ask him to speak to your heart? Father, I want to thank you for a church body that has an appetite for your word. Uh, They've never asked me to just tell funny stories. They've never asked to be entertained. Um, What they want is the word of God cut straight, clear. May that be the case today. We don't want to add to to it something that is a denominational slant. We just want to allow the word to speak for itself. So give us ears to hear. Hearts to understand. A will to practice. We ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us to continue to transform us today. Again, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the fact that we can have confidence in your word and that you have a word for us today in 2 Peter. And so we come not to be entertained, but to allow your word to be filtered through our mind and heart and put into practice. And so we need you for that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Peter is specifically addressing people who are blind and forgetful. And he doesn't want them to experience a fall and not producing the qualities that he talked about in the earlier verses. He says they can be nearsighted, and we become nearsighted when we are overcome with the things right before us. Overcome with, let's say, circumstances. And then we become blind to what is ahead or blind to having been cleansed by our former sins. Now, this word being blind or nearsighted can have two things in mind here, I think. Um, He talks about in this book about forgetting about the second coming of Christ. And so we can become so infatuated with our circumstances that we forget about Christ coming back. He gives a hint of this in 2 Peter 1.16 when he said he didn't make it up. 
when he talked about Christ coming back. And then in chapter 3, he addresses the false teachers who are basically saying, hey, the second coming hasn't happened yet, so, you know, you guys are out to lunch. And then he says in 2 Peter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. So it's important because the second coming is part of our motivation. He says further in that chapter, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Do you ever think about that? Maybe one of the reasons that we don't have peace is we don't think enough about the second coming. That's worth us meditating on. How many times have we gotten ticked by what's going on in the world today? Remember the second coming. How many times do we feel like that these politicians are so dirty, so manipulative, we're never going to get justice? Remember the second coming. Sorry, Melanie, I wasn't pointing you out. All right. <laughs> but we get this feeling that we're just never going to see justice, right? How many times have we felt that I've lived the Christian life and I'm just not getting ahead. It's not really worth it. Remember the second coming. Christ is the culmination of our salvation here on earth. And the second coming will bring that about. He brings justice that we've yearned for. He brings rewards to the faithful. And so his second coming is significant to our motivation. I'm not going to get into a whole eschatological map, and this is not the time to discuss, you know, whether we're a-mill, pre-mill, post-mill. Let's just all agree that he's coming back. And let's not be blind to that fact. But we can also be short-sighted when we are overcome by our present circumstances and we don't see the benefit of hardship and trials. And we don't see them as necessary for maturity. We see them merely as something to escape. And there are, you know, a lot of, of Christian communities that that's what they pray. You get sick, pray that you won't be sick anymore. You're poor, pray that you'll get more money. Just escape it all, okay? And that's really what God is for, right? He's a genie in a bottle. Whatever you need, you rub it. You say the right prayer. You believe with the right kind of faith. You're going to get God wants you happy and rich and and prosperous. See my teeth shine and my wavy hair? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So spiritual blindness happens when we look away from the grace and the provision of Christ in the midst of trials. We supplant our spiritual need with comfort and earthly pleasures. Now, I'm not here to tell you you should feel guilty for wanting to be comfortable and having earthly pleasures, right? I mean, we probably all would like, let's say, new furniture to be more comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, maybe you'd like a new mattress because the one you have right now is old. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we lead with comfort, we do whatever it takes. Even if I don't have the money, I'm going to get the couch. Even if I don't have the money, I'm going to get the mattress. So when you lead with comfort, you can make stupid decisions. All right? So when it comes to the Christian life, I realize we all would like some comforts, right? But we can't lead with that. We can't let that dictate our decisions. And Paul says, some forget this. They think the key is physical comfort. And they forget the shape that they were in before Christ forgave them. And what happens is we forget grace. We pridefully proceed on our own. And he delivers a warning. But the warning is not for them to question their salvation. Please understand this, all right? He's reminding them of how a believer should be walking. Uh, You might remember when uh, John wrote to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. And he talks about a similar blindness. He said, for you say, and notice what their problem was, I am rich, I have prospered. You could really say, isn't this kind of a modern evangelical problem? I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know, maybe it could be said of the church board in Laodicea that they were really proud of their annual report. They had great numbers to look at. Impressive stats. They were proud of their ministry, and by human standards, man, they were, they were blowing and going, right? They took pride in their possessions, took pride in their property, organization. Hey, they had all the pretty people in that church, right? So they thought everything's great. It's kind of like the emperor and Hans Christian Andersen's story, that these Christians thought they were clothed with splendor and the emperor's without clothes. And there's Christians that are unfruitful, spiritually naked. And Christ informs them it also makes you very insensitive, not just to your need, but the need of others. So despite being cash rich, they are spiritually poor. Despite their clothing factories of fine wool, which Laodicea had, they were naked. They were blind. They could not see their true state. And this is what Peter does not want for these Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey. 
Remember our former sins and how lost we were. Remember the state that we were in when we came to Christ. You know, the antidote for blindness is remember the grace that was poured into our life when we sinned or when we were actually characterized as sinners before we knew Christ. See, when you do that, when you remember what life was like before you knew Christ, you remember the things that you're into, how maybe the state of your heart was, how dark things were, and you realize God still loved you, and it brings a, a, a humility instead of spiritual smugness. So he said, I don't want you to be nearsighted. I don't want you to be blind. I don't want you to be blind to the things that God has done in your life. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, confirm, that word is also used for abide. It has the idea of kind of proving the viability of something. Now, Peter is not telling them, prove that you're a Christian. That's not the message. He goes out of his way to confirm that they already are Christians, okay? He's conveying that their calling and their election is not to be an excuse for lack of effort. And I suppose there are Christians like that, that they think because God has made a promise to me and, hey, I'm going to heaven, I can do whatever I want to do and live whatever life I want to live because I got my ticket. And that certainly is not Peter's perspective, right? We have to be all the more diligent, showing great eagerness and earnestness to display the characteristics that he talked about in verses 5 through 7. Because that's what people who are elect do. You know, if I said to one of my kids, hey, um, because you are a part of the short family, all right, there are certain principles and ways that we expect you to live. Okay? Now, what I'm not saying is, if you don't do it, you're no longer my son or daughter. Or if you don't do it, you never were my son or daughter. That's ludicrous. That's stupid. All right? I'm not saying prove to other people that you're our kid. All right? I've never said that. Or I didn't say, you know, I don't know who you are because you didn't live a certain way. No, what I'm saying is live consistent with the training that you have received. Peter means the same thing when he says, confirm your calling, and your election. Nowhere is he questioning salvation in this passage, but they're to live consistent with what God has provided. Just be faithful. Okay? So he's already encouraged them that they are partakers. And if they practice these qualities, they will not fall. And fall here has to do with their sanctification, not their justification. That's to do with their Christian walk. He's taking a word that means the sure-footedness of a horse to keep from tumbling, okay? So he wants them to do those qualities in verses 5 through 7 and not fall or miss on those qualities. And they can do that by 
cultivating their relationship with Christ. It's really not very complicated. When I'm walking with God, when I'm living in dependence on Christ, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to have some great moral failure. When I don't, and as a Christian, I live my life to the flesh, I'm going to what? I'm going to reap flesh. Okay? It's going to be fleshly results, and I will fall. But I'm a Christian. And that's what Peter is saying. So live consistent with that. Okay? Um, so when they fall, they demonstrate that they're blind, that they've gotten their eyes off of the grace of Christ and the, their neediness of Christ, not just in salvation, but in daily walking with Christ and, and abiding in him. And when they do that, their footing is sure. So he's concerned with their perseverance, with their faithfulness, and that it provide a rich entrance into heaven, which we'll talk about in, in a minute. Um, so when he says calling an election sure, it's pertaining to life and godliness. We are withstanding the attacks of the false teachers. Now, let's uh, take a little bit of a rabbit trail here that I think deserves some, some attention. I don't want to get too far afield with this, but I think it, it deserves at least mentioning. And I, I think there's a problem within Christendom that to fend off egregious troubles with future converts, people will often front load the gospel with this prospect making all kinds of promises before they obtain the gospel. And so, you know, I, I need to repent from numerous sins, all kinds of things, before I obtain the gospel. I've got to clean everything up until I come to Christ. Okay? Now, there's, obviously, we're all for repentance. We're all for living in obedience to Christ. But these are not things that we do to obtain the gospel. These are things that happen because I've already obtained the gospel and Christ is working in me. Okay? But what some people who think this think is that if I don't have, make the promise, I don't make the commitment to have, Lord, have Christ be Lord in all the areas, that the gospel invitation just simply isn't valid. Now, if I were to ask you folks, how did God work in your life after you came to Christ? I would get a variety of answers. There would be some that would say, you know what, I was into drugs and immediately I got off drugs. There might be others that say, you know what, I was into drugs and six months later I was still in drugs. But God, you know, it's taken a year or two for me to get off. Or I was an alcoholic and I, I struggled with alcoholism but, and I, alcoholism quit like that. Or... You know, it's taken me a while, and I've gotten in a group, and, you know, uh, I'm working on it, okay? Um, or you might uh, say, you know, I was completely materialistic, and when I came to Christ, I wasn't materialistic anymore. Or uh, what I find is that some of those things happen over a period of time. My, my, my point is this, is that all of us struggle with sin, first of all, right? As Christians, we all struggle with sin. First John says, if you say you don't, you're a liar. So we all have sin problems, okay? That's a fact. 
right? And I also agree that there's transformation uh, once we come to Christ. But if I say that the speed of that transformation has to look a certain way that only I can approve of, otherwise it's invalid, that just seems that I'm trying to fit everybody in the same box. I mean, how fast the change comes does not change our confidence in the finished work of Christ and the covenant that God makes for us. The confidence of our salvation is Christ alone. That's the confidence of our salvation. And the Bible teaches that our salvation is secure in the hands of God. And it's because of the finished work of Christ. And this should and will produce work in the believer, but that's going to look different from one believer to another. And so when I make the change that should come as the target of my assurance, then I've subtly changed from Christ being my assurance to my performance being the assurance. And frankly, it's an impossible standard to define. Because how many works do I need? How soon do they need to happen? Anybody you ask, you're going to get a different answer. There is a Christian teacher. If I named him, you'd know who he is. So I'm not going to name him because he's a wonderful guy. I love his preaching. He walks with God. So, you know, my, my point is not to avoid this guy. That's not the point. But I want to give you a quote of what he said when he talked about this. He said this. He goes, I know people, and I would say this about myself, for whom the greatest threat to my perseverance and my ultimate salvation is the slowness of my sanctification. It is not theoretical questions like, did he rise from the dead or the problem of evil? I've got answers. But why I sin against my wife the same at age 62 that I did at age 42 causes me sometimes to doubt my salvation or the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is not theoretical, end quote. So for this teacher, the treatment of his wife is a criteria for confidence that he's a Christian. I would say this, that how he treats his wife, okay, listen to me closely, is a criteria of whether he is walking with Christ, not his salvation. Now, those who advocate that self-examination of certain fruits for regeneration is necessary in order to verify that regeneration, I think, supplant Christ for my works. And again, you can't, nobody can define this. So you throw things in there like that. And again, I'm not getting on that guy's case. I love this guy. I've heard his sermons. I've read some of his books. Wonderful man. But the net effects, and this is the other thing. You can believe that you can lose your salvation, or you can believe that you got to front load the gospel like I've already described, and the net effect is the same. And you know what that is? That the final determination of whether you're a Christian or not is your works. And so we take our focus off of Christ and onto ourselves. But I'm here to tell you that our focus should always be Christ. That's the confidence that I have. Now, let me throw out a popular passage that is often used 
to argue against the point I'm trying to make. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You go, bam, short, there it goes, right there. See, I tried to tell you, that, that's it. So you're wrong. Well, first of all, I can always be wrong. <laughs> all right? I hope you're not thinking, I'm always right, all right? Uh, I'm not saying I understand it all perfectly, so I hope we can understand that. But there is another way to look at that passage. I just want to at least throw this out, that the context of this is that they weren't sure that Christ was in Paul speaking through him, okay? And in the same way, he's wanting Christ working through the Corinthians. The question was not, is Paul a Christian? but is Christ working through him to speak the things that he has spoken as an apostle? That was in question. And so I think he's turning it against them and saying, hey, uh, is Christ really working in you the way he should? Okay. Then, what does it mean in the faith? Does that mean whether you're a Christian or not? Not necessarily so. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says to Stand firm in the faith. In Romans 14.1, he talks about being weak in faith. In Titus uh, 1.13, he speaks of being sound in faith. In 1 John 5.8.9, he speaks of being, again, firm in faith. The point is, in the faith does not mean salvation here, but living consistent with our beliefs so that we're manifesting through our faith, certain fruits. Now, they can fail that test, right? Just like they denied that Christ was speaking through Paul, they can fail the test of Christ working through them. Paul is saying, Christ is in you, now act like it, okay? Okay? You know, when you buy a house, so look at it this way, and you are given a deed of trust that is the document that says you own that house, okay? That proves ownership. So I own a house, okay? I've got the deed of trust that proves it, all right? Is the proof that I own that house whether I mow the lawn or not? Is the proof of whether I own that house of whether I take care and remodel it? No. See, I have the choice that I can take care of it, I can try to make the lawn look pretty, or I can let it go to crap. Okay? I can never paint it. I can let the grass get a foot high. Um, I still own it, but I can take advantage of not being a good owner. And you might even say, the house doesn't endure well, just like some Christians don't endure well. Our salvation is the same. Our deed of trust is the covenant of God that he makes to every believer when we put our faith in Christ. That covenant is sure and binding, and it's as good as God is with his word. Peter is making a case to take care of your house. 
Not to make sure you're owners. We're already owners. Now take care of it. And by the way, how many of you have seen the 100,000-mile warranty for cars or lifetime warranties for a product? And then you have something go wrong, and then you want to try to get something done, and you immediately find out that warranty is only as good as the people who are backing it up. And I'm telling you, the promise of salvation is as good as the God who makes the covenant. Not my performance. That is worth rejoicing over. The book of Hosea, if it said anything, it said that. It said that, you know, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, idol worshiping, I mean, full born to sin. And God was still communicating to them that the, the Abrahamic covenant is good, but you guys are going to experience all kinds of consequences for walking away from me. Now, Peter doesn't get into all the negative consequences so much here. He talks about the positive consequences that will happen because of our obedience. Okay? Uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. So, insurance, assurance of salvation comes by looking at the person of Christ, reflecting on his beauty and the benefits of the gospel. As one author wrote, he said this, there is no illustration or teaching in the Bible of one believer ever giving assurance to another that is pronouncing him saved. Only the Holy Spirit gives subjective assurance in the heart in response to looking to Christ, the mirror of our election, and contemplating the beauty of the gospel promises. The Spirit himself testifies us to God with our spirit that we are God's children, Romans 8, 16. And so as we do this, there is fruit of, of a godly life, and there are rich benefits to that. And we find this in verse 11. For in this way, you will be richly provided for, for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, the fact is, this is probably going to be new for some of you. Because i got to make i got to admit something. You know, I grew up in a church, and it was a great church. I went to Bible college. I went to graduate school. And I've got to be honest with you. I don't remember one teaching on rewards. Ever. Never heard about it. And I bet there are some of you that are just like that. I don't know why there was that chasm. Now, if you did hear about it, great. Um, it, now, if it was talked about, and when I say I never heard one teaching, that that was the main part of the teaching, I heard that there were re uh, rewards, but I never heard a sermon devoted to it and explaining it and in terms of, of motivation for us. Okay? Anyway, what it says here. It talks about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's his kingdom, right? He's the one that rules in this kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. John 18, 36, uh, 18, 36 he says, My kingdom is not of this world. It's his kingdom. He's the one who reigns in this kingdom. It is entered into by relationship with him. 
And Peter firmly ties the, the future rewards of Christians to our connection with Christ. Now, let us notice that there is a way for entrance to be richly rewarded, which seems to imply there's a way to enter in which you are not rewarded. All born-again Christians will enter the kingdom of Christ, but only those who develop the Christian character that was talked about in 2 Peter 1 will have the special kind of entrance. So he's talking about heavenly reward, not salvation from hell. That's the theme. The holy and fruitful lifestyle described are fitting for a Christian who are called and chosen. So live that way. That's his message. And as a result, God is going to richly reward you. So pursue that pathway, partaking, applying this with great effort. In 2 John 8, we read this. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what you've worked for, but win a full reward. The writer of Hebrews makes a similar point. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This doesn't mean that a believer is to fear losing their salvation. It's a fear of losing reward. Clearly, there are eternal consequences to the Christian who squanders their Christian life. This is what creates the fear of God, that I will stand before God and have to give an account for my words and deeds, not to enter heaven, but in terms of rewards, right? I remember one time we had one of those... um, plastic blinds that were in a window in our former home and one of our kids had bit into them and I could not get anybody to fess up so I lined them all up in front of the blind and just measured where their mouth were to and one was shaking because they were going to face the truth of what was happening right now if they bit into the blind Am I going to throw them out? No. I just, you know, applied a little heat to (laughs) their bottom for lying to me that they didn't do it, all right? And so the point is, is that there will be a reckoning for us for the way that we have lived our life. Paul makes a similar point when he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. No, that's not the fire of hell, it's the fire of God's judgment, of looking at it. All right? Who bit into the blind? That's, that's the kind of fire it is, Okay. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is built up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He couldn't be any clearer. This is not about salvation. This is about rewards. You will be saved, 
but there will be a, a price to pay. I remember hearing Jer David Jeremiah talk about this, and I never thought about this, so I'm not saying this is the case, but it's an interesting thought. When, he sa when it says in Revelation that he will wipe away all the tears, he's saying, why are there going to be tears in heaven? Because people will realize they have squandered their life and haven't lived faithfully to the Lord. Again, I don't know if that's what that means, but it's interesting to think about. But it's definitely the case where much of what we've done out of pride, arrogance, for our own self, comfort, it's, it's going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But things that we did out of obedience to God, out of motivation to serve Christ, like saying, you know, yes to him to go to Turkey, or yes to him to continue to love my spouse when maybe they don't love me back, like continuing to obey the boss who's unfair to me, okay? Like continuing to be a good citizen when I don't trust the government, okay? I mean, you could give all kinds of illustrations of how this is applied. But when you're obedient, when you continue to be faithful, that is gold, silver, precious stone. So it's rewards. More specifically, there are passages that speak to this reigning aspect. Now, I don't know all of what it means, but it certainly seems it's going to take place. It's like a royal summons by God for a glorious privilege within the kingdom of God. Consider this, 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Okay? If we deny him, he will deny us. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you what some people think it means is that if you deny Christ, you're not a real Christian. Or if you deny Christ or you deny you know, following him or being obedient to him, then you're going to lose your salvation. But this is not about salvation. It's about a future reigning or rewards. So when I deny Christ, then I'm not going to be rewarded for that. He'll deny me rewards for that. Now, if, if denial means you lose your salvation, poor Peter, because he lost his. He denied Christ three times. So I guess he just lost out. Good luck, Mr. Apostle. Now, you know that's not the case, right? Salvation is not in view. It's an aspect of the kingdom of God in allowing Christians to enjoy reigning because of their obedience. Revelation 2.26 gives some specificity when it says, the one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority to the nations. You know, maybe if you know somebody good enough, you could have them read this verse, but how many Christians do you know that have tubed out? You know, say, I've had it. I've had it with churches. I've had it with God. He hasn't come through for me. And I'm done. And then I read a verse like that. And what are they doing? They are squandering reward that God could give them by enduring well, by continuing to work. Right? There's, there's special privilege in the future kingdom 
some kind of ruling that takes place. I don't know all the details of that. I'm just taking it at face value. We read again, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, I don't know the specifics of what that means, but I know it's available to those who are faithful and endure well. And not every believer will have those special privileges. All believers generally have trusted Christ will be in heaven, but not all will have full rewards or reigning privileges. Again, he can deny us full reward. He can deny people reigning privileges if we deny him. Do you know how many times I heard that verse thrown at a church during an invitation? If you deny him, he'll deny you. In other words, you better not deny Christ by not walking that aisle because then he'll deny you. If there ever was a works salvation, it was that. That is not what that verse means. Right? Paul says it again in Romans. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit of God not only bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, but also that God has given us promises to reign with him if we continue to be faithful. And obviously, not all are faithful, and they will pay a price for that. Now listen. You say, well, Kevin, you haven't talked about false conversions, people who say they're Christians, but they're really not. Well, that's because that's not what this passage is about. But sure, I believe that that happens. There's no question that happens, all right? That's just not what Peter's talking about, right? These passages are designed to encourage us in the precious and magnificent promises of God. And God is so Gracious that on top of heaven, he rewards those who serve well, who, who suffer humbly, who love with their hearts still open, even people that are, you know, taking advantage of them. I think all of us sitting here could probably say that we've experienced a type of Christianity that has us all tied up in knots, right? I have, and I would imagine you have too. And all I'm saying is, I think it comes in not understanding a lot of these kinds of passages. And I don't think God wants our hearts tied up in knots. He's giving us a great invitation to freely daily gaze upon the wonders of Christ, the power of Christ in our life to enjoy the fruit that it produces and to enjoy being great recipients of his grace. Sure, we want people to serve. Sure, we want people to give. Sure, we want people to sacrifice. Sure, we want people to obey God in all aspects of their life. But we don't want you doing that because we're shaming you. We don't want you doing that just because I told you that. 
I point my finger. That's not it. That's not the motivation. The motivation is that God has been so good to us. Don't you remember what life was like before? God has been so good to you, and he's given you all of this equipment. Now use it. Right? I mean, it's like going back to my house illustration. It's like, you know, you got this, this new mower. You got a new trimmer, and your, your lawn is 18 inches high. Why is that? Because you're not putting forth any effort. And Peter says, put forth great efforts. He's given you all that you need. This is, not a, this is not a passage to shame. It's a passage to encourage us. Wow. And to put it on top of that, he will reward you richly. That's just because he's so gracious. Right? That's the God we serve. He loves us that much that in our obedience we're going to find great pleasure because of what he's done in our heart and also great reward for doing so. Let's pray.